Welcome to Talk Town. Today's special guest is Grenville Wood, one of South Australia's most successful marathon runners, competing in the Commonwealth Games, World Championships, New York Marathon, Tokyo Marathon, Vancouver Marathon, Sydney Marathon and Melbourne Marathons. These are some of the moments that make up Grenville's life. Grenville, can you tell us about your earliest memory? I guess my first memories were um, as uh, a young dancer in England. My mum was a, a ballet dancer and then opened her own ballet school. So I was, uh, um, I suppose it was a compulsory thing, part of being in the family. My sister danced, so I had to dance or I was supposed to dance. And so I, uh, that was my first competitive sort of uh, experiences, being on the stage dancing and doing what uh, was in the family. And was that... Uh, every day or just a couple of days a week? When you um, I get my, it certainly was every day for my mum and my sister but I probably used to go down to the ballet school three three times a week and, and uh, after school and I suppose I did a lot of my homework down there when I was a bit older but uh, certainly uh, it was every day for, for the family and uh, you know it's hard to remember exactly how many days I did go but certainly it was a big part of my life and right through to probably about 10 or 11 years old was when I actually quit the dancing and took on other things. Uh, so the early memories as well like mucking around and where you grew up where, where did you grow up? Well I grew up in Bradford and and my my father had uh, shoe shops in in Bradford so uh, Bradford uh, in the olden days was the lead leading uh, city or town in the world for the wool industry so all Australian wool used to go to Bradford to the uh, textile companies and and um, so Bradford was a very busy city back then and you know, that's you know I grew up there and uh, there was a lot of uh, things to do running around on the Yorkshire uh, moors and even though it wasn't running as such but I used to love to go out there on the moors and chase a dog and and things like that so I had a lot of great memories from the Yorkshire Dales and and uh, you know they're all creatures great and small location and mm -hmm. so that was a lot of my my past and I still remember it quite clearly. Did you have a very close relationship with both your parents? Yes, yeah, I did. I mean, we, you know, I, my, my, I've got two other brothers and a sister, and uh, you know, we were a fairly close, close family. Um, we had um, relatives that lived very, very close by, and we were always seemed to be at their house and our house and certainly Christmas time. You know, it was kind of going from one house to the other to go for different parties and things like that so I think back in those days there was a lot more socializing because we didn't have the you know the the tv sets of computers and things like that so there was a lot more of you know being out playing and um, you know and things like that and certainly you know the playing and sledging in the snow and things like that was was a fantastic memory from my past. Was your um, father involved in the war at all or was he a bit young? Uh, no, no, he was he was uh, he was a truck driver. I don't think he actually went to to the uh, you know the front of the uh, fighting, but he he was a truck driver in England. He used to ferry things around, so he was he was involved, but not not in the you know kind of danger side of things. Do you remember your um, like first day at kindergarten? Uh, no, I, I don't remember. I don't even know if we did have kindy back then, but I certainly remember my first day at school. Um, 
you know, kind of going off with it, my satchel on my back. And again, I, I was only in, in England just a short time ago. And, uh, you know, you, you look at the school you went to and I thought it was miles away from home. But in actual fact, it was just around the corner. And as a, as a five year old tramping off to school, you, you kind of uh, think it's a long, long, long way. And, I, and, you know, funnily enough, as a five year old, you used to walk home after that first day of being taken to school. You'd walk home from school on your own. And, uh, you know, that's unheard of these days. But, you know, that's what we all did. And, you know, yes, I remember going up to school and, and just just you know, meeting friends for the first time and then, you know, coming home. And we had electric trolley buses that you sometimes have to catch up, up the road if, if you didn't want to walk. Did they have, um, I've talked to other people who have, did your school have like special lunches put on for you at that stage? We certainly did and, and uh, um, you know, we, we you actually, it wasn't very much money, it was about sixpence or five cents in those days, but you, you, you had a little lunch ticket and you went into various sittings because schools were reasonably big, so you know, you'd be maybe three sittings of lunch and you go in there and you know we had if we didn't like the food we'd we, we had certain songs that the whole school would sing if you were uh you know kind of not liking the semolina custard um you know i mean in fact i remember the first few words were semolina custard green snot pie all mixed up with a dead dog's eye and uh, you know they were they stick in my mind forever those songs and um but uh they they were great times and uh, but later on you you know, late, a little bit later on, I'll probably talk about that later, you know, when I started running, I used to, you know, kind of sell my lunch tickets so I could go for a run and then buy some, you know, chips on the way back. And, uh, you know, they, you know, I don't know if my parents knew about that, but certainly they were the fun times I had. And I, that was the start of my running career, you know, later on. Um, academically, how did you perform at primary school? Not that well, because my parents were a bit of a tra- bit of travellers. I actually ended up going to 23 schools in my days. They were always moving around. And, um, you know, I guess it all started in about 64 when my parents first came to Australia. So I think I'd already been to about four schools in England and then we came to Australia. So uh, I did move around an awful lot from school to school to school. And so academically, I found it quite hard to readjust in short periods of time to 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 new school curriculums but saying that i think in in the long run i had a a wide worldly knowledge of things so later on in life i actually found it was quite useful and i think that's something that's very interesting in in education now that you academically you might not be brilliant in one specific area but but if you um, have, a, you know, a huge worldly knowledge of what you've seen and done, it can actually come through later on to give you that that inability to just, you know, know a lot of things about, you know, a bit of jack of all trades, but master of none. Uh, so 23 schools. So um, how old were you when you were moving schools? Like just sort of run oh, through that in England, well, just do the England. Thing. Yeah, in England. Look, I think my mum, at that very first school we talked about, we I went to to that school. Now, right now, I was only there for about six months. And my mum suddenly said, oh, no, I don't like that school. You know, we'll send you to um, the, the, the first one was Wibsey School in, in Bradford. And then uh, uh, I went down to the another school after about six months. And that, I think that was called Legrooms Lane. And uh, you know, probably stayed there for, a, 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 I guess, a, another couple of years or something. And then she said, no, nah, I'm sending you to a private school. So I went to Rosebank Pri- Private School. 
And then, then I think it was about time to come to Australia. And then, needless to say, we arrived at Grange and we were just renting a house down there. So I went to Grange Primary for about two weeks until they found a house. And then was um, then we moved out to Paradise. And so I went to uh, the, the um, Paradise School. And then again, to change me for some reason, I went to then to Campbelltown School. And then it just went on and on and on and on. You know, going back to England after two years, I, I think I went down to Keswick School. And then we arrived in England. It went through the run of the schools again. So it just went on and on until, uh, you know, even coming back to Australia when I was a teenager, I went, first of all, went to Northfield High School and I was only there for about three months and then mum said now nah, we're sending you to St Paul's out on Grand Junction Road so it just continued continued and continued I, I, I think the school I enjoyed the most was when I came back to, to Australia to, to uh, um, at the Northfield High School and there was actually girls there. and at that age I really was starting to look at girls so it was the first time I'd ever been to a school with girls so and then the movement which is very disappointing <laughs> to a boys school <laughs> did so what, what were your parents doing as business? They, were they doing a business or were they working? Were they changing jobs all the time for this well, to happen? Or? No, my, my, um, my dad had the shoe shops. He had a, a chain of shoe shops in England. But then when he came to Australia, he didn't do that. He, he worked for a company called Max Shoes. And Max was based at uh, had a few, few shops here. One, the one he ended up managing was Tea Tree Plaza, but it's now changed to Bets and... I think it was bought out by Bets and Bets. Um, that was my dad's side, so he was always a shoe man. Um, and um, uh, my mum was uh, working with disabled, uh, mentally, you know, me mentally uh, challenged children at... Um, Hillcrest Hospital and then she went into the to the schools actually helping children in schools with those sorts of disabilities. When you were in primary school in England was there any other sports that you played? Um, not in my primary years I think I always just enjoyed I always enjoyed running I was I, I must have driven my friends mad because at recess time or lunchtime I'd say can we play racing and none of them liked playing racing because I used to beat them and <laughs> but I think that's why I enjoyed placing <laughs> playing racing but then later on I I, I switched to soccer and um, you know and, and I, that's what I think a lot of kids played in in England and and um, yeah I just stuck at soccer I don't think I was terribly good as, as far as you know, what international players are and, or anything like that but it was just a thing that kids played soccer and, and did you um do any formal athletics in primary school in england no no i didn't i, I mean i did i did um run around a lot as i said doing the racing games at recess and lunch and i suppose that kept me fairly fairly fit and i and i think it, even in the soccer um I had that ability to be quite fast off the mark, and um, which helps a lot in soccer because you know you get onto the ball quite quickly. Um, I think my speed off the mark was probably far in advance of my skills with the ball. So uh, you know, probably when I did get the ball, I wasn't great with it, but I was first run onto the ball, so <laughs> it made me look a lot better than what I really was. <laughs> um, so, where was your first high school? Um, my first high school would have been, which is hard in England, it, it's a different age group. Um, so I suppose St. Bede's in 
in uh, Bradford was classified as a high school, but certainly the very first high school in Australia was was uh, Northfield High School. And I guess I was I was about thirteen years old when when I'd arrived back in Australia for the second time. So that was my first experience of a true high school, um, and then certainly St Paul's. Uh, after that was was high school and with the high school did, did the athletics come in become involved yeah well I, it's funny i just at st beads when i'd gone to st beads back in england i started to realize that um well actually i didn't start to realize how good i was at running my i was playing soccer but my cousin was the yorkshire champion in running and and my parents used to go and watch him win these races and and um so i thought well this is no good no one comes to watch me play soccer because probably because i'm not very good at it but um i'll i'll i might start running so um i actually joined the cross-country team and and um you know i i went out and had a try and thought yeah i'm not too bad but i didn't have any any kit and um as as i said before my dad was in the shoe industry so um my I said to dad, can I have some running shoes? And he and he said, well, you know, you're not going to stick with this for long. I'll I'll give you some desert, uh, some ripple sole desert boots, <laughs> and from the shop. So I rode up to my first running uh, night with the training group, and I've got these ripple sole desert boots on. And needless to say, it doesn't go down well with with the boys at school. You you know, you get named and bullied a little bit, and. Um, but you know, I ran with these these boots for probably a good month or so before uh, my dad finally uh, bought some proper running shoes, um, and um, and then it started. And then I, I started to not win races, but certainly do reasonably well from just training and selling my lunch tickets to go out running at lunchtime to get some training in through the local woods in in um, Bradford and uh, you know I, I remember quite vividly going out almost every lunchtime for a run and then zooming back to, to school and grabbing some potato chips or something to eat for lunch instead of uh, going into the lunches with you know everyone else so it was very memorable and and then we then we arrived in Australia so then it was where, that's when I looked for a running club, which happened to be Enfield Harriers and and John Pierce, who was, you know, a, a good coach out there and has, and still is uh, a person that's out there and uh, coaching uh, young athletes. So he was your first actual coach. Yeah, I mean, I just joined Enfield Harriers and there was a lot of people out there just running and John handled a lot of young runners and I wasn't I wasn't a great runner at all. I mean, I I, I just ran. Um, you know, I I, I remember I, I'd struggled to run six minute miles for for races or three forty five per k, but you know I, I really enjoyed it and I'd ride out there on my bike to training at at. Um, uh, St Albans Reserve at Enfield and joined John and then I, I think it was a maybe a probably about a year to 18 months after arriving that um, I got my first real coach I suppose or specialized coach which was Ken Williamson and he was a bit more uh, focused on what I needed to do and, uh, and went on from there. And where was he based? He was he was based actually just around the corner in Ingle Farm where I was living. Um, and you know Ken had, Ken was a, a, a huge part of my success because not only did he coach me through the younger days and give me the confidence to train hard and and to be out there all the time. 
Um, but, you know, when I did start work later on and I was going to night school, you know, Ken would be out there training at um, five at night with the, with his group. But then, you know, when I'd get home from night school at 8.30 at night, he'd come back out and he'd, he'd follow me in the car uh, for another hour and you know we'd be running until 10 o'clock at night and that went on for four years uh twice a week he'd he'd follow me in the car uh for those hard nights and and um you know told me the exploits of what everyone had done earlier in the evening and i remember vividly i'd you know i'd get home from from um a night school kind of pretty tired and ready to go out to this course to to do a a, a hard run and and you'd be thinking, oh, I don't really want to run hard tonight. But then all of a sudden, Ken would say, oh, Gary Zuna ran a record time on that course tonight. And you go, oh, no, that means I've got to go hard as well. And it was always this, you know, Gary Zuna did this or this person did that. And, you know, we had a, a course up uh, to the top of uh, Para Hills. It was a uphill two mile and then you came flying down two mile as well and um, Ken would always say oh Gary Zuna brought the record tonight and I'd be thinking the only way I can beat Gary Zuna's long legs is to get to the top of the hill really fast because Ke uh, Gary Zuna had come down the hill so fast with those big long legs so you know we'd, it would be just challenges all the time to break records and be better than you could but Ken was out there every night with me doing that and uh, you know that's that's uh, you know a huge uh, commitment for him and I often think well if I hadn't have had Ken would I have ever gone out training at 8 30 at night and you know on a, co a cold wet night he probably said no I wouldn't and so you know maybe I would have given it away mm -hmm. and so then you know so that's that was very important to me. So that, that, that era, how old were you when you started with him? I would have been about uh, 16 right. by then, I reckon, yeah. 16. He took me through to about 19 years old, and that's when I ran, <laughs> ran my first marathon. But, um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, Ken was a big part. Wow. So with that group, obviously you were sort of training with the squad, but you were basically by yourself for a lot of it. Mm. Did um, you catch up and work with them like on Sunday mornings? And yeah, like yeah Ken, would, Ken would actually pick us up about, you know, 8.30 at, at St. Albans Reserve and he'd drive, he'd drive us out in his, in his old Toyota Corolla. Well, it wasn't an old Toyota Corolla. It was a, a great Toyota Corolla back then, but it just seems old now. Um, and um, we'd drive all the way out to these courses, sometimes out to the top of uh, Golden Grove, which had no houses then, and, uh, or, or up to Waterfall Gully. And he'd say, right, I want you to run to the top of Waterfall Gully here and then back all the way back to, to uh, Enfield again, which, you know, was probably about 16 kilometres in, in total, which, you know, as a, as a young runner, that seemed quite a long way. But, you know, it was really good. And then we'd get back to the track about you know probably 10 30 11 o'clock and he'd say right you know i want you to do you know kind of four four hundreds hard now or eight two hundreds after our long run so it was it was really good times and you know he'd on a hot day he'd go down the shop and buy us all these these uh, i don't know if you, we still have them but they were called snips they're like a triangular uh chocolate frozen drink and you know that was our treat you know he'd buy it uh, uh, by the whole group uh, a snip which well, I think they were only about five cents back then they're probably <laughs> probably about five dollars now yeah they had chocolate and strawberry snips didn't they <laughs> they did they were yeah, great loved them boys. that's right <laughs> they were great oh wow the um so with that were you um competing on Saturdays at club level at that stage yeah and yeah we, we were I mean that was a huge part of running we, we competed every Saturday 
and as well as uh, quite often uh, Adelaide Harriers had a Tuesday night track meet and we'd train at, at, at say the 5.30 uh, Enfield and then uh, I think about 7 o'clock there'd be a meet at Adelaide Harriers and we'd go out there and, and do a, an odd race out there so it was a fair bit of racing and then on the Saturday certainly you know the club events were huge and John Pierce was very keen to make sure that all events were filled so you you did everything from 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 steeplechase to race walking um, never took to race walking but <laughs> but you know I, 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 I did a couple of race walks just to you know suppose fill the teams and with with that uh, competition, I know there was some pretty incredible runners around that time in South Australia as well. You had a, a very very high end, a lot of athletes competing. Did you make state teams at that stage? Yeah, well, that's a, a good question because no, I didn't. I back in when I was around sixteen years old, we had an abundance of world class runners. In fact, I think at one stage we had uh, three under. 18 world record holders in Adelaide. Gary Zuna uh, was one of these people that are incredibly good. Um, Tony Bart, Jim Simmons, uh, Ian Oliphant, every one of those guys were, I don't know if, Ian had, if um, Gary Zuna had the world record, but certainly was close. But, but the others did have world records for their age group. A Tony Bart, one hour run world record at 16 years old. Um, and so I couldn't make a state team because, you know, they take away four or five people. And, you know, when you've got world record holders, you just couldn't make the team. And so I continued to work really, really hard to try and bridge that gap. But, you know, they were pretty outstanding runners. But at the same time, they, they trained really hard. Gary Zuna, Jim Simmons, Tony Barr, they were all part of Hartley Wheeler's group who did train very, very hard and, and got the results for that hard training. Right. Did you um, move on to another squad after you, when you were 19? What, where did you go then? Well, <laughs> what happened was, that, I mean, I started to... So at 19 years old, you know, I was going down to Western Districts. I'd changed from Enfield Harris to Western Districts. And I'd been running with that the Monday, Wednesday groups that, that would run around the city and do their long, fast, continuous runs. And then Tuesdays, Thursdays was the speed. Um, and Westerns was very much a distance running club back then and had some great runners, uh, marathon runners in particular. And um, I remember one night I was running along and I was a, I was 19 years old and um, I said to, uh, I think, uh, Brenton Norman, uh, what, what do you have to do to run a marathon? And he said, well, you have to run 100 mile a week for a lot of weeks and then, you know, you, that will give you that base to run a marathon. Well, at that stage, I was running 30 mile a week, which is 50 kilometers and um, so I thought oh well, that's all right next week I'll give it a go so <laughs> a following week typical young person went out there the next week and I ran a hundred miles and I and I didn't go down to Westerns that way because I was too tired but I was just running these miles and then about um, two weeks later uh, I, I went out to Westerns and and ran with them again and and I said to Brenton I, I, I've done a hundred mile a week for two weeks and I was absolutely wrecked and he says oh I shouldn't be doing that you should be easing into it and I said well I've already done two weeks I might as well keep going and I, and I says when's the next marathon he says well there's there's one in 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 three weeks time the state marathon at Roseworthy so I said oh I, 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 I'll go and do that 
Anyway, he didn't say anything to me. And the following week, I did another 100 miles. So I was into my third week of 100 miles a week or 160K. And I went out the following week. And I think it was a week or so to go to, to the marathon. And Brenton obviously had thought about it. And he turned to me and said, look, Grenville, don't run the marathon. It will wreck you. Just why, it, you know, the Roseworthy course, you run out one way for six and a half miles, turn around, come back to the ha- uh, to the halfway mark, which is also the finish line. And then you go out in another direction on a straight road for six and a half mile, come back and there's your full marathon. So he said, just stop at halfway. And I thought, oh, you're right. All right, I'll do that. Take your advice. So came the marathon uh, after four weeks of 100 miles a week. And um, and uh, I, I went out there and um, I'm running along with the field. And there was uh, everyone running along quite well. And um, John Williams was the state title holder at that stage. Um, and he... I was running next to me and I'm feeling pretty good at about six and a half miles as as you would and then we turned and I'm up the front with John Williams and then all of a sudden John Williams had to shoot off into the bushes to go to the toilet and I found myself leading the race and and um, I'm heading back towards the halfway mark and John Williams is out the bushes trying to catch me but he couldn't catch me he had to go back into the bushes again and he had a bit of a tummy trouble and I actually got back to the halfway mark leading the, the state marathon. And and I'm thinking, oh, I'm supposed to stop here, but everyone's cheering for me. I can't stop. So I just kept on trundling straight through out the other side. Well, by this stage, um, I'm, I'm out at about the 20 mile mark and absolutely wrecked. And um, Joe and. Ken Williamson, who had coached me before, was following in the car, as many people did in those days. And he's yelling out the window, fantastic, keep going, Grenville. And, you know, all I could see was six miles of straight Roseworthy Road out in front of me. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. But I went on to win that race in 2 hours 36 and, you know, win the state title, which hit the papers the next day. And, you know, that that hit that started my um, career. And that, and as I lay on the ground after this ha- this marathon, dead to the world, I remember just lying there thinking, oh, my God, even though I've won, I, I feel like. You know, I don't ever want to do that again. And um, Don Don't, who was a, an official back in those days and unfortunately has passed on now, came up to me and said, well done, Grenville. Congratulations. You're running the national marathon here in six weeks. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God, what have I done? And so, you know, unfortunately, I got thrown into marathons by chance, not by choice. And yes, I did. Six weeks later, I was fronted up again and ran um, a two hours 30 marathon which was the third fastest in the world for a for a 19 year old at that stage so again it threw me into the limelight and I didn't really want it and that probably did record a lot of my early running so it wasn't a great thing to do early on to be running marathons at 19. Did you, uh, so with that did you then go stick with the marathons or drop back to 10Ks and 5Ks a little bit more? Yeah, no, I, I, I stuck with them because I thought I was a marathon runner. And for the next five years or so, I just didn't really improve any more than about the, the, the two hours 30. And um, what really um, 
uh, prompted me to to make a move is I was always thinking and about why are these runners in the north of England so good up in Gateshead and Newcastle there was famous runners up there like Brendan Foster and, and later on people like Steve Cram and uh, some great runners up there and then you were reading in the Runners World magazines about these runners and we didn't have internet then so it was always magazines and I thought wow maybe I should go and see what it's like so um I I actually decided to do that and so I just packed my bags uh didn't tell anyone I was going I just rode rode up in t- uh, uh, London and hired a car drove all the way up the A1 motorway and uh, and lobbed it at the um um, Gateshead Council Chambers, where I knew Brendan Foster's word. I'd found that out from the internet, or not the internet, sorry, the um, uh, uh, Runners World. And um, and um, I, I I rode up to the front desk about eleven o'clock in the morning, and I said, uh, I've, "Is Brendan Foster here? I've come to run with him." And she looked at me and she said, oh, I'm sorry, he's on a two-week holiday. And I was devastated, absolutely devastated. I didn't know what to do. So I was just about to walk out and she says, oh, but the other runners will be still going out at 12 o'clock to run, that normally run with him. If you want, I'll, I'll, um, I'll ask them if you can join them. So she came back about two minutes later and says, oh, yeah, yeah, you can join them. So I zoomed back to my rented car, opened up my suitcase, got my running gear out, waited till 12 o'clock in the lobby. And then these runners came out and um, uh, and I started running with them. And as I was running along, um, the you know, with this uh, guy called John Kane, who turned out to be an extremely good 5,000 meter runner, about a 1330 runner, um he he we went down this country lane and there was this beautiful big two-story actually it was a three-story house and um he said that's my house and he said I, I i dreamed of buying that house when i was a young lad and i thought if i ever become an international runner and i get some money i'll buy that and he did so a bit later on in the run he said where are you staying I said well I've got no idea and he said well you can come and stay with me if you want so that night I was staying with him and I I, I kind of trained with them for uh, quite a while and learned all about running and how hard they trained and went down to the Gateshead track and and then vowed that I'd come back to Australia you know pack up my bags and come back again and train for a long period of time and get a coach which I did and ended up with um, Alan Storey who was Mo Farah's coach uh, before he went to Salazar and he just changed my life he he kind of made me realize how hard you have to train not necessarily um, you know just a huge mileage every day it was high mileage but he turned me very very quickly into the 212 runner that I ended up achieving so was that that wasn't the milers club was it that was no no I I I actually you know joined the uh, Gateshead uh, club Um, back in those days just to make a team was in the north of England was was a real achievement and in fact the, the national relays if you uh, I remember being selected to run in the national relays as, as like the sixth runner and people were congratulating me for being the sixth runner in because and it was just a huge achievement to do that um, because of depth of runners so uh, yeah no it, it was it was a great experience and it, and it did learn to toughen me up and realize how hard you have to run in races as well as training to to um 
to which you know, achieve your best. So that time frame, what, how old were you for that period? What, what, what I was probably in my, you know, probably early 20s, you know, 22, 23, something like that. And, yeah. And how was, long were you in England for? Oh, not that long. I, I tended to get there. I did it twice. I, I, I'd get there about uh, March, April and stay right through to july august because in the north of england around august the cold north winds start blowing across <laughs> england and you you know being an australian you suddenly think oh my goodness so in 82 um no 81 sorry 1981 i um had been there all all uh all season and then about august uh i suddenly said right that's it i'm packing my bags and i went then to train at altitude in Johannesburg, and that's 6,000 feet above sea level, and joined a, a, um, a guy over there called Tom Fleming, who was a great marathon runner that, uh, from Boston, uh, who was kind of second best to Bill Rogers. And we trained together in, in uh, Johannesburg, and that was nice, back to nice weather again. It was great. So. So how did you make those contacts? Like you said, you didn't have the internet, and uh, was it just letter writing, or yeah, it was it just word of mouth? It was, well, certainly, um, peop- Runner's World back then was a great source for information, and then, you know, quite often you'd you'd hear things like, you know, uh, Brendan Foster works for the <laughs> for the Gateshead Council, and so you know, you put two and two together, and say, right, well, if I, if I head up there, I'll be okay. And same thing with... Um, Tom Fleming. I'd heard that um, that there was a that one of the biggest uh, sports clubs in the world is called the Wanderers, and that's in Johannesburg, and it's all sports. Um, and and even Ron Clark had gone and trained there in his day, and so I wrote a letter to to the Wanderers and said, you know, could I join your your uh, groups for a while? And and they said, well, as a matter of fact, Tom Fleming's coming <laughs> to do his altitude training yeah, at this time. So I kind of just kind of, I don't think he knew I was coming. But then when he suddenly realised there was another marathon runner there, it was great for him and. I remember remember that first night vividly in, in Johannesburg because we rolled up. I think it was I'd arrived on the weekend, but the Tuesday night there was a like a club run, which is a five mile uh, handicap race. And you know we'd just arrived and it's six thousand feet above sea level, and, and there was this race, and you know we Tom and I took off together and we hammered it on this five mile race, which is about eight k, and um, and Tom beat me by about twenty seconds and. And um, I can't remember the times. It was it was probably reasonable, but nothing special. Um, but within literally ten minutes of finishing, my head felt like it was just cracking in half. My, the headache it was just amazing from altitude sickness. Mm-hmm. And Tom got really sick with it. He had to have a, a about four days of rest because you know it was just not a great thing to do. You know, racing at altitude when you're not acclimatized so um i wasn't too bad i i remember i'll never forget the headache though but you know later on in life i realized that's exactly what it was and um you know i kind of feel for people like ron clark that had to go and race in mexico city in 68 and uh, you know do the 10,000 meters <laughs> in the same situation so um 
yeah it's it was all experience but you know after that time off uh that tom had we trained probably another five six weeks just doing 10 mile runs morning and 10 mile run at night and you know we'd be joined by these african africans going to work with their lunch boxes and they'd run with you for two or three miles with a lunch box under their arm and you'd think my god these guys can run which we all know now <laughs> but you know um back then there wasn't as many black runners around and um uh, yeah, so it's it's all fantastic memories for me that I look back on and think, yeah, I remember that. And so, how many thousand feet was it? Or six thousand. Six thousand. Yeah. Feet, that. So that's pretty high. It's not it's not extraordinarily high, but you know, um, you really do feel the effects of altitude at six thousand, and uh, you know, you get you just get tired even just just walking around. You get tired at the end of the day, but certainly running, you know all about it, and it's mm. it's a great. Um, um, I suppose it just teaches your body to to work a little bit harder at that sort of altitude, and your and your 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 body just adapts by um, uh, creating more um, oxygen carrying capacity in in the blood. So uh, because it's just a natural body thing to just adapt to this situation it's in. Now the coach that you had you mentioned that changed everything. Can you think of some of the major differences to what you were doing? You suggest train harder and run harder. Yeah. But what what sort of things like in running terms? Can you remember some of the sessions or things that changed? Yeah, certainly I can. I mean, it wasn't so much the the long running because I did that anyway. Mm-hmm. What it was, it was it was being specific to what you're trying to achieve, and um, you know. Uh, Alan Surrey was was I think a, a, a expert at that, and uh, he's passed a lot of that on to me. Now the way I think about training, and he used to think about what am I trying to achieve with this person? You know what's what's needed in their body to to run faster, and so he'd make sessions up to suit your needs so for example um like if you were you know a lot of people would say well you know run run one mile reps and you'd say okay well uh, uh, if i've got to run these mile reps or 1.6k reps at 5000 meter pace um yeah that will get me used to running 5000 meter pace um but sometimes that's too hard to do in training so you know for instance if you had to run 70 seconds per 400 for four laps um it's easier said than done you know that's that's not easy to do and so he'd say well if you can't achieve that what we'll do is we'll do things like you can run um five 400s with a 20 second recovery in 70 seconds and then you'll achieve your 70s 20 seconds recovery won't give you a recovery as such but it will it will give you the ability to to get the 70s out so things like that it made me think a lot uh, about that and needless to say when i was doing this you know four sets of five by 400 or you can look at it from and say well that's rather four two kilometer reps or 2400s whichever way you look at it but he looked at it as well no we're not actually doing 400s we're doing 2k reps before you get a break even though there's these little 20 second breaks there but i was able to achieve the 70 seconds and then slowly get them faster and then from that you can progress on so he he was a bit of a guru at that sort of ability to design sessions for needs rather than this is a training pattern that fits all mm-hmm. and i think that's that that is the key and i know people like alberto salazar does exactly the same thing with his athletes like Mo Farah and Galen Rupp that they they're very specific there's no set 
training and I think that's one of the mistakes that people make these days they think well if Steve Monaghetti does eight fours with a 200 float and he's done that for the last 30 years that's why he's so good we'll all do that well there's a lot of people doing that same session that aren't as good as it doesn't work and so so because it's not specific to their needs and you know and that that's 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 all sports you know, you've got to find out what you need to move on and then when you do um, achieve that goal you move on again and you keep readapting because the body's an amazing machine that can adapt to to so much but you've got to give it an idea of what you want it to adapt to yeah so you just keep stepping up the yeah just exactly always set new goals new always step, step yeah. up step up don't if you're standing still you're yeah. going backwards and and, <laughs> and i think i think really you know a really good goal to go out to training is when you go out to training uh you should be going out there what am i trying to achieve today rather than what do i have to do today so if you you know if you go out there and you say well what's what's the purpose of today so if it's a if it's oh well i need to get used to running for a long time and not get tired well yes going for a, a steady long run for a couple of hours is that's your, that's what you're trying to achieve but but if you did that every day it's not going to give you. It's not going to make you a great marathon runner or or ten thousand meter runner. So the next day you're thinking, so I've done my, um, you know, get used to running for a long time. What do I do today? Or well, now I need to be a bit more specific to the pace of my set race. So I better do some of that, and I need to recover. So every day has a a reason and a, and a specific goal. Did you, um, I remember you doing those sessions actually at Kensington when you came back? Because funny, I remember joining in with some of those where you had your twenty second breaks and your four hundred, and you have a whole mass of people turning up for them after a while. We had a big group, and you yeah. said, "No, we're doing this. I'm doing this," and mm. people would hang on, and people I'd probably do every second one because I couldn't cope with every first. So I was only a bit, uh, but you had a big group of guys doing that with you as well, which would have made it a little bit easier to do, I suppose. Yeah, it did. I mean, that was it was great out there, and and as I say in in England in Gateshead, you know, you, there'd be such a large number of people that you only actually had to take one one lap of of a whole night's training because if it was you know ten or twelve people training with you, and um, you know you had to do you say twenty four hundreds, well, you only basically have to do two two reps each, and uh, you've got it covered, and that was really good. It becomes a bit more like a a race situation then when you can actually sit back and relax like you see Mo Farrow doing in, in his races where they just sit back relax and don't take on the lead until it matters at the end and mm. that's a that's also a very important part of training is the fact that being able to sit in a pack relax run smooth and relax so so back in those days running those training sessions where lots of people were out there uh and and i tried to guide them back then by saying well if you can't do this amount do every second one and and then you'll slowly adapt to the training yourself and you know and and i saw the results of that you know i saw a lot of runners going under 15 minutes for 5,000 meters in that group that that uh you know even today not many runners are doing that mm-hmm. and i think that was just a result of being in a group being specific to what they had to do and um you know and i think that's athletics in general you just have to nurture every person along to achieve their best and make sure they're doing what's best for them mm, that's incredible insight really the um you came back to australia and you were started to do very very well and so you started to go well in the state championships. How many sort of state championships did you end up doing like this? And oh my goodness, you know, yeah, I've got no idea. I, I, you know, I probably won 
20, 20 state titles, you know, over the years. Mm-hmm. I've got all these tiny little medals in my, <laughs> actually in the cupboard next to you at the moment. <laughs> and, uh, and, and there, uh, but, uh, you know, I think I've, I think there's, uh, there's about eight national medals there from, from, uh, which I do have on display, but, you know, um, it's hard to say. I'm, I'm not a great medal person as far as trophies. I, I've got a few choice, uh, trophies out and, um, you know, as I said to you earlier, some of my most prized medals or trophies are the ones that I had to work so hard. And and you know, behind you at the moment on the on the wall is this eleventh uh, place Great North Run. And and you know, people often say to me, "Why have you got this on display, eleventh place? That's pretty awful." And and I say, "Well, hang on, they broke the world record that day. Um, the Olympics." Uh, bronze medalist Charlie Spedding from the Los Angeles Olympics in the marathon he finished just behind me uh, <laughs> in 12th place and I ran 63.25 for half marathon um, and that's I know that day I couldn't have achieved any better and I had to run my legs off to you know hold off probably another 10 runners passing <laughs> me in the last 300 meters um, it, the depth was just amazing and um, you know and, and they're the races that you look at and you think oh my goodness that was a performance that I could never achieve again and um, where some races you know even when I w- I've won City Bays um, you know I, I won if I look at my diaries I won by over a minute and you think well yes I won and it's a City Bay but it's not you know, you don't have that feeling that you uh, couldn't have run any faster. You, you just never know where some races you just think that was it. That was my best. And the reason I'm not the best in the world is because I'm just not the best in the world. And I, <laughs> I gave it everything. It's as simple as that. And that's, that's a good feeling. I think when you finish your career, you've got to look back and say, did I give the training everything? Did I give the racing everything? And, you know, I can honestly say yes. Yes, I did. And, you know, I, I dreamed of beating Rob D. Costello. And, and in the National 25K in, in Sydney, uh, that was my closest. I got to him at 30 seconds behind him, um, but never got to beat him. And uh, But, you know, he was the best in the world. And um, I have to accept the fact that he was better. And, you know, my world ranking, my best ever world ranking was 23rd in the marathon. And... Um, you know that two twelve fifty to get me that twenty third was the best I could be, and that's it. You know mm-hmm. you, you've got to be pleased with what you can achieve. I, I I wouldn't like to look back and think, oh gee, if I'd trained more, I could be better. Um, no, I couldn't have trained any harder. That's uh, the best I could. And you had a coach that has proven to to the world that he's a great coach. You had great advice. Yeah, I did. Training as I well. did. Yeah, I did. And you know he probably got the best out of me. He said I was a my asset was the fact that I just worked really, really hard. I don't think it was the super talents of the Gary Zunas and some of the other runners that we've had, because you know sometimes athletes have got enormous talent, and 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 uh, I didn't have that enormous. I mean, obviously I had some talent because I wouldn't have run two twelve, but 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 not the super talent of some people that that just go on to be, you know, the best. Mm-hmm. You know, the Mo Farahs that you know have obviously got. They've got the they've got the drive and the talent, mm. and that's why they're where they're at. In 1983, you made the world championships. Yeah. First team. Now, yeah. I think if I, I think I'm right because I remember being around for all this, and that's when you 
it's, we're hearing about it in Parliament at the moment, people with um, citizenship. And I think you had to... Didn't you have to get an Australian citizenship? I did. There was a big kerfuffle, just like what's going on in Parliament now with the it, dual citizenship. Exactly, yeah, because I, um, I had to quickly... I didn't realise that that was the first time... It was the first World Championships in Helsinki. Mm. And they said, well, are you, are you a naturalised Australian? Well, I was still on a British passport. Um, I'd been going backwards and forwards, to, to, as I said, to my running over there. I uh, never even thought about it. You know, my, my parents brought me out, and they, so I had to quickly uh, become a naturalised Australian and do the, you know, do the uh, uh, go down to the local council and, uh, sign, you know, kind of say my allegiance to Australia and all those sorts of things. And then I became a naturalised Australian and went off to Helsinki. And um, yeah, that was uh, first time I ran. In a, in a big games, I'd been to places like Vancouver to run for Australia in just a marathon, but the World Championships in Helsinki was was a real eye opener to living in a village um, and the experiences of that. So um, it wasn't it wasn't a great experience for me early on because back in those days they didn't really know a lot about distance running so we, they took us across to um, London six weeks before the games and said right here's a hotel stay in there and um, it was really hard to train when you were in the middle of London and when, you know, nowadays they'd say, well, we'll, we'll send the distance runners to a nice place to train before they go into a village. So things have changed a lot, which is great because, um, you know, it's, you know, you need to be uh, aware of what each each type of runner needs. Sprinters are fine, you know, put a, put sprinters in a, a, a hotel in the middle of London and as long as there's a track around the corner, they're happy with that and the gym, but you know, distance runners. If you can't run along the road without stopping every, you know, kind of 200 meters for cars, isn't great. And that's what did happen uh, leading into Helsinki. And that, and it's probably one of the reasons I, I wasn't in great shape when I arrived. So, um, but it was still a fantastic experience, and it's a learning experience again that I can pass on to other athletes. Um, you know, Rob De Costello at that particular time, he won the world title in Helsinki, but you know he had that sort of power that he could turn around and say, "Well, I'm not coming to London. I'm I'll roll up to the uh, um, village in Helsinki, you know, with three days to go to a marathon." And he was training with Ingrid Christians, no, not Ingrid Christians, um, uh, Greta Waits yeah. in in. Sweden I think uh, leading right into that so he he was doing the right thing but I don't think I had the power back then to be able to push my case and um, um, I tried it actually that same thing in going into the Commonwealth Games in in 86 uh, where I was training uh, the team went down to Belgium to train and I was um, I was I separated and trained with uh, Julian Gota in England and um, I remember my wife um, rang me up and said, the papers are here are saying that you're about to get um, sent home because you're not with the team. And, you know, and I said, I've never heard about this. And she'd, she'd heard it in the papers here, but she said, well, you better contact them and find out what's going on. So I rang up, got, got onto them and they said, well, if you don't get here in two days to the to the main group in, in Birmingham, they'd come back to by then, then, then you're not running. So I quickly hopped on a train and flew it, got into Birmingham. And as soon as I kind of went through the front door of the, the, the hotel that they were all staying at, it was all 
before oh okay you're here now that's fine but uh, you know it was like paperwork that you know was quite quite silly but um yeah i mean look things have changed now i know people like uh uh, Adam Didick, uh, who, you know, they go over to nice places to train in, in different countries before they go to main, main, main championships and uh, takes, you know, just train global, get to run around with where it's great and train properly right, right into a race. And mm-hmm. that's what you need to do. It's just the difference. I think Jess was training in St. Moritz. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and it's it, a big change. It is. It's, it's huge. And, you know, it's quite funny, really, that all my best performances were races like New York Marathon, um, uh, you know, uh, Tokyo, uh, where you literally just go into a marathon. You roll up, you know, five days before the race. You, right. you just get there lie around in the hotel get over the flight and race and then the next day generally you're on a flight home again and you know and and, and in contrast to that in the bigger races where you're taken away from your training surroundings distance runners drop off quite quickly because um you, if you're not doing what you need to do it doesn't take long before you lose the edge mm. um just, just mentioning the new york marathon can you just talk about what that was like to compete in that well, it was great. I mean, in New York, you know, you go through all the boroughs of of, uh, of New York State and you start off on, you know, uh, out at, I think it's Staten Island and you go over this huge bridge. One of the things about New York Marathon is you, you, you go over about 20 bridges and, you know, some of the bridges are small, but some of the bridges, you know, they're, they're incredibly high. So it's, it's the, 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 there's a quite a height and so they're like massive hills and uh, to go over. So, you know, you've got a lot of hills in that course. And one one of the actual bridges is just a, a metal grid that's for the pedestrians. And they have to put carpet over the grid to, so that your feet don't burn with the, the friction. Um, and, and then the carpet itself gives heat friction. So it was a fantastic experience. And, you know, you're going through areas like Harlem, where back in those days, in, in 85, when I went, um, you know, you're going through Harlem and had to clear all the, uh, you know, all the derelict cars off the side of the road before the marathon comes <laughs> through. But then when you do go through there, all the everyone's got their big beat boxes out the front of their houses and it's on full volume and the noise of the the rap and the songs were just amazing as you <laughs> went past it it was a, it was quite you know quite an experience um but you know like um New York was a hot day. Um, the time I ran that was Orlando Pizzolato had won the race in 2013, the year before, in very hot conditions, and come through the field. and And I took off in in that race uh, with with kind of close to the front. Um, didn't even think about Orlando Pizzolato in the race, um, and we flew the first. 10 mile and again and that's probably caused by the the race organizers would put up ten thousand dollars for the first person to be at 10 miles so that tended to push the pace a bit <laughs> and um and so i'd be flying along and and then i remember getting to about halfway and um and orlando pizzolada came chugging past me and i thought oh no he's 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 held back and he's going to go through and do well well, he went through to win it uh, again in about two hours 13. But I was running extremely well. And when we hit um, Central, pa- uh, Central Park, I think, it's, uh, which is about 5K uh, round there to, to into the finish line, I was really passing a lot of runners. And I ran myself up into 10th place. Um, and um, 
you know, the the uh, race organizer, uh, Alan, Alan Stein, uh, Steinfeld, um, was um, had brought brought me across, and I think he was a bit uh, worried about you know bringing this pretty well unknown runner across for him so when I finished the race it up so high up he was wrapped that he'd made the right decision and and I was lucky enough that you know uh, when I went back home again with my nice big trophy that's again uh, up there behind us um, was um, uh, I, I it, they flew me back first class on the jumbo jet upstairs in the bubble so um, it was a fant- <laughs> fantastic experience and great again great memories for me and uh, so um, and, and I won some you know good money back then um, you know it was ab- I was able to buy uh, my first house and so they were things that set set me up for my for for normal life mm-hmm. after running God. so it was great so was there any other australians travel over you for that marathon no no i was the only one and what it, how that came about was um alan had come to adelaide with bruce abrahams was running the the um, festival city marathon back then it used to be gola to adelaide and then it changed to just around the city and they wanted to be on the ames registered worldwide you know list of accredited marathons and so Bruce Abrahams had invited Alan across with his wife to look at Adelaide and the marathon um, and Bruce rang me up and said oh look you know while you're here do you want to show him around so I took Alan around to you know Cleland Park and showed him kangaroos and I think he felt obliged to invite me to the his marathon uh, and, and that's how I got that race so it was a it went out on a limb for him but I, I pulled it off in the end by proving that that um, I, I could run reasonably well, and I met some great runners over there, like like uh, Julian Gota, who was the British 10,000 metre uh, record holder, and he was running his first marathon. And you know, I've, I've you know created friendships from that, and still see him. Um, and yeah, it's just a different. You know, you look back on your life again and say, wow, all these things happened because of something else happening. Yeah, just the linking up. Um, can you remember much about the Tokyo Marathon? I do. Yeah, Tokyo is another classic just one. Just talk us through that. Well, Tokyo Marathon, I've got an article in the paper that uh, Glynis Nunn wrote when she was advertised with the with the uh, uh, at the advertiser. And um, <laughs> what happened? I arrived in Tokyo uh, for the race. And, um, you know, back then, um, you know, just went for a wander around the, the the city. It was late at night, and I came across a um, I came across um, a, a the station. And out the front of the station, there was these people selling animals in cages. And I'm standing there looking at the cages. And this lady came up and she says, "Oh, do you like animals?" And I said, "Oh no, I just wondered why they're all in cages." And she said, "Oh, do you want to be join a special blessing?" And I said. Um, Oh, how much do these blessings cost? I was getting pretty aware of what it's like overseas by then. And I, she says, oh, no, it's free. It's free. Well, it was the middle of winter in, in, in January in Tokyo. It's a very cold place. So I said, oh, no, I don't know. And she goes, she goes, look, come over here. Meet my mother. She, she, she'll take you to the blessings as well. So stupidly, I went with her. And we hop on a train and we're heading out of Tokyo. I think, what on earth am I doing here heading out of Tokyo? I'm going to get murdered. <laughs> and um, But fortunately, after about 15 minutes on the train, we hop off and we ended up going down the street into a church. And then when I got in there, they said, oh, welcome. We, you know, you're going to have a special blessing. 
Well, we went round the back and they said, look, you've got to take your clothes off and put on this white robe. And I thought, oh, I'm going to be sacrificed. You know, <laughs> this is it. This is the end of marathon running for me. Anyway, I put the, the white robe. I don't know why. My wife still doesn't forgive me for this. And um, walked down the back of the garden. There's this huge pond with all these people around it. And in the middle of the pond was a lady dressed in white. And she's beckoning me into the water. And I put my toes into the water. And I said, I'm not going in. It's freezing. And they said, oh, you must come in. So I went into the water up to my waist. And she said, now kneel down in front of me. So I knelt down in this water. And she she suddenly started dunking me under the water and <laughs> said, oh, my God. So I came out of the water, freezing cold, I was shaking. They're celebrating all this. And they said, oh, yes, you've, you know, you've been in a holy pond. This pond, people come from all over the world to be, to be, you know, sort of get rid of any sickness they have. So on the way back on the train um, to, to, to Tokyo, I said, the lady said, well, what are you doing in Tokyo? I said, well, if I haven't got pneumonia, I'm going to run the Tokyo <laughs> Marathon on Sunday. She said, oh, no, 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 you won't get pneumonia. You won't get sick from going in there. All you, If anything goes wrong, you must say the word Alleluia and you'll be fine. So getting on to the marathon now. I'm in the marathon. This is one of the biggest marathons runners runs in the world. And we took off and we're going really, really fast. I got to about five kilometers and I'm feeling absolutely terrible. And I think, oh my goodness, this is going to be a hard marathon. And all of a sudden it pops into my mind, this, this Alleluia. So I sneakily, you know, kind of fitted in a little Alleluia between breaths. And all of a sudden I'm feeling great again. <laughs> so I said about five hallelujahs through that race, came right through to seventh position, beating a lot of really world-class runners, ran a 2.13.38. And, uh, and, you know, when I got back to Australia, I said to Glynis, uh, none about the story, and she says, oh, we've got to print this story. It's a, <laughs> and I've still got a clipping in, uh, in my scrapbook of the, of the story. And the, the headline in big black letters is, would you believe Alleluia? <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, that was it. So Sydney, um, Tokyo was a great race. It was very high level and, um, yeah, one of my best ones. Wow. Um, then we'll just talk a bit about the Commonwealth Games. You made the Commonwealth Games. Uh, where was that run race? That was that was uh, in uh, uh, Glasgow in Edinburgh, eighty six. Um, yeah, I'd a bit of a bad uh, experience from that because what actually happened was I went over to the Great North Run, um, ran the sixty, the one I was talking about earlier, sixty three twenty five. I really should have come back to Australia after because I had about a six to eight week wait through to the Commonwealth Games. I should have come back, got back into my own training, but I stayed in England um, and was doing some local racing. And I was racing quite well, but about two weeks before the Commonwealth Games, I started to, I'd run this really good 10,000 meter race, but I started to get hamstring problems. And um, and then going into the Commonwealth Games, I, I had the hamstring problems and by about five mile into the race I could just feel this pulling on the back of my leg and I felt terrible and I staggered through the race I shouldn't have really finished but I staggered through in about two hours 26 but um I'd be very happy with 226 now but uh, <laughs> in, uh, but but uh, happy with 236 now uh, but certainly it was it was devastating for me because I just thought oh you know I've gone from a 62 and 62 and a half half marathon basically to you know, having a shocking marathon, but I just think, yeah, it's just circumstances. I didn't didn't plan it out, or 
over raced or whatever mm -hmm. so uh, yeah but commonwealth games are still a, a good experience i mean they're all they're all great yeah you know, they, you look back on it and it's another experience to, to look at. And can we just talk us through your best time, your best marathon, your 12? Yep. Um, just sort of talk through that preparation to it, where it was, how you felt running it. Yeah, well, look, the, 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 that was the Melbourne Big M Marathon. Uh, it was Frankston to Melbourne, which is a one-way course. And um, it, was a, it was a windy day, but what enticed me to that race was Bill Rogers, who was supposedly the you know one of the best marathon runners in the world and had won boston three or four times was coming and i thought right well this will be great so i trained really really hard um but what i had done slightly different to that I, i'd worked really hard on my speed and um i'd probably neglected a bit of the endurance uh, and i knew uh about three weeks before the marathon i ran a, a 3k on the track and ran 813 which was very fast for me um and uh, i knew i had the speed and um i thought to myself right i'll be really fast until i get to 20 mile what's going to happen then i don't know so as the race started i took off and i was leading by 100 meters uh, probably at five mile and Bill Rogers was probably back in the pack wondering who this this guy was in front that he'd never heard of, of before and slowly they, he caught me up uh, with with um, uh, a few other good runners um, Andrew Lloyd was, was one of the previous winners he was in that pack and went on to win a Commonwealth 10,000 metre uh, uh, gold medal um, and we were running really aggressively and um, we came out onto the seafront, which was really, really windy, and you know, we're all battling against that. But then the, the wind cleared because some buildings blocked it off, and about 13 or 14 miles, Rogers just took off, and I went with him, and we were flying along. I'm thinking, my God, this is fast. But, you know, eventually it dropped me off, but he um, got me really going, and we were running extremely fast. and. I remember coming down St Kilda Road and Rogers was up in front about a minute in front and I was running along thinking, my God, I'm running fast, but I'm tired. <laughs> and uh, I, I think I got to about 40 kilometres and I thought, well, I am going to run a boomer here if, I, if as long as I don't cramp up or something like that, which is always, you know, a big worry. You don't want to go 40K and then stop with the last 2K. <laughs> but I, I didn't cramp up. I, I kept on going and and crossed the line in second place in, in 2.12.50, um, and that was my best time. And, um, uh, you know, I probably was overshadowed by the great Bill Rogers being first, and I was second, and but still, you know, it gave me the credentials. to as That gave me that 23rd best in the world that year, um, and that was great, you know. Yeah. I, I enjoyed that. It, it probably was, even though it was my fastest time, um, it probably wasn't my best race. Um, uh, later on in 1985, um, probably was my best race. The, the Wang Marathon, where I won the Australian title and, and beat a lot of international runners that have been brought in. Mm -hmm. You've um, you also been a great coach as well, and you've coached some. You've been very select who you coach, <laughs> but when you do select them, geez, they do bloody well. So can we just talk about some of the people you've coached, um, Richard and John, yeah. and, um, back in the day, um, who really became, ran some brilliant, you just want to talk about some well, of Well, John, John was obviously a Western Districts runner, and, and he was quite talented, and I, I don't think I actually 
you know, he came to me and said, "Will you, will you train me?" And um, um, and so really, again, I just passed it on that that nurturing through what I'd learned and trying to bring out the best in them. And and John was very successful. He, he went under it th- went under fourteen minutes for for five thousand meters, and uh, and then did ex- some extremely good uh, steeplechase races. Um, you know, uh, uh, one of the things that I've always uh, thought about coaching is I don't ever want to hold anyone back. And I got John through to uh, probably about 13.55 at 5,000 metres. And I, he talked, I talked so much about England with John that um, I said to him, look, you know, he was very keen. And I said, well, why don't you go over there and, you know, jo- do what I did, go and join Gateshead and run with them. And, and so... You know, I was more than happy to think, well, if I've taken him to 13.55, that he goes over to England and and, and, and goes the next step again. I, you know, I've just been part of his progress. Uh, and so he went across there and, you know, it didn't work out quite as well for him as, as, he, as he thought. Um, and we still you know, talk to each other all the time. Um, he, what he did do, though, is he, while he was over there, he met... Uh, uh, Karen, his a girlfriend then, and now is his wife. So you know he stayed there and lives there in just outside of London. So he had some r- good races, but probably didn't quite kick on. And, and funnily enough, he used to sit, ring me up and say, "Look, I think what I was doing back in Australia was better than what I did." But I mean, that's again, I think it, at least he can look back on it then and say. I gave it a go mm-hmm. and rather than thinking oh Grenville kept me with him all his life and I wonder if I could have been a better runner <laughs> so that was John um you know um I, I, as far as other athletes go I, I you know I'm not sol- that selective with who I pick I'd, I'd like to think whoever I coach is is actually committed to do the work, do the work. Yeah. Uh, and and it's not so much about the talent I you know I think I'd, if if um, uh, they work hard they'll, they'll achieve their best but yes a few people like you know Paul Morgan Kim Morgan they've run ex- extremely well um, Demi my youngest daughter and Casey's gone well and you know one of the things that frustrates me more than anything is when people particularly when my daughters will say oh well it's just genetic and you think oh my god no it's not it's hard work <laughs> it's nothing to do with i mean yes they, they're born with they're not they're not you know short or they're not um you know just naturally overweight or whatever but yeah it's just a lot of hard work as you'd know it's Ian, you have to put in the work and and guide them down the right path as well as they've got to have the desire themselves to be the best they can be and and uh, and put in the work so you know i think i still uh, i would still like to coach uh other athletes particularly in distance running and i think uh, my network now that I, I you know one of the things these days with skype and things like that i talk to people every day in fact only um last night i was talking to my old coach in england and um, we talk more on an equal basis now about what do you think of this and I've tried this and it's risk networking and and he talks to Alberto Salazar and then passes me on that information so there's a real uh sharing of knowledge and and I try and put that into people that ask me for advice about what to do but you know I really do believe that you know you, you if, if you can find the athletes that want to do the work and then you uh, uh, you know, give them what you think's best for them. 
they will get results. One of the hardest things to do is, you know, a lot of people just want to be part of a group now and, and, and being part of a group means, well, yeah, but you're doing the same as everyone else and separating them to say, well, tonight you've got to do this and this person can do that. And sometimes you can, you can, you can have them together, but one person pulls out earlier and that's okay. But I don't really believe it. All right, I've got 30 people in my group and tonight you're all doing kilometer reps because in that group, somebody's going well but maybe the others aren't you know you sort of have to disguise it don't you you do i you know do. i do that I, I i might have kilometer reps but there's five different versions of that yes exactly in my mind yeah and uh, to try to make that happen dogs going off <laughs> <laughs> grenville's vicious dog watch out <laughs> yeah so yeah it's very very true and so you know i mean you can say to people like you know we'll just miss every second one and just do them a bit faster so that's if you've got a big enough group you can do that but you know as long as people understand that and that's what you're trying to achieve and so um that's good last question grenville what makes you happy oh wow that's a <laughs> Most things, most things. I like spending time with my family, and and um, basically, you know, what makes me happy is is just laughing all the time and and having a good time, and that's just from friends to going out to training, and you know, um, um, you know, just just in being around people that enjoying what they're doing. I, I, you know, when when I see my wife watching a, a a comedy program on TV and I can hear the laughing from the other room, I mean, that makes me happy because it's, she's happy. So I, I, I you know, I, I just like to see other people happier. One of the things I don't like, I, 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 and probably one of the reasons I don't get too involved with coaching is I don't, I don't like to be around if there's any friction going on between people. I'd rather stay out of it and keep happy because I don't, I don't like confrontations and I'd rather be, I'll keep to myself and be happy, so to mm. speak. But, and so um, I, I, I um, you know, I, I really enjoy my life and uh, just come back from overseas. We're in, this time last week, we're in London and Paris. And so, and again, I spent that time going up to see old people in running and, uh, a lot, a lot of my life runs are it still involves running, but uh, it's nice just catching up with people. And now it's at a different level. I'm not the athlete. I'm, I'm just a person that likes to talk about the past, mm. and hopefully I don't bore people and things <laughs> like that. Yeah. Thank you, Grenville. It's been an honour to have a session with oh, you. Thanks. Today. It's been good fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Talk Town. We are also now broadcasting on Stitcher. So please forward this to any of your friends with Android or people that wish to follow this on Google Play. Hopefully you've enjoyed today's show. Please forward or subscribe to Talk Town.